So I've heard it said many times that the Bible is the most purchased uh, book in the West. And I don't know if that's true or not. I don't even know who counts these things. But I would wager that uh, regardless of your relationship with Jesus, whether you've been following Jesus for a long time or you're still trying to figure out what uh, following Jesus might look like, or maybe, maybe you got dragged here today for the snow cone situation, whatever you're at today, I would wager that there's a high percentage of it, there's a high likelihood that you uh, have seen a Bible. Uh, for many of you that you own a Bible, that you have a Bible maybe in your house. Maybe you, some of you maybe even have multiple Bibles. Uh, for others of us, maybe we've been given Bibles by people who think we ought to read it. Those people need to mind their own business, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, for others of us, we've been, we've been bestowed uh, maybe family heirlooms uh, Bible. I, I know that I've got a Bible, and it's literally, uh, it's like a family heirloom, and it's like this big and that thick. There's paintings in it and stuff like that. And uh, how often, and it's the King James, how often do you think I use it? Yeah, I chase my kids with it, like, get away, right? I give them the word. That's what people would say, you know, discipline children and give them the word. So, uh, so that's nice. But so, so for many of us, we have Bibles. And for some of us, like I, this is like a print Bible that I use to preach in, um, or preach from, I should say. But, but for, for many of us, we might have a Bible, or at least be familiar with Bible. Uh, but, but, but here's the deal. It, it's one of the most like sold books, but it's also oftentimes one of the most underused. And I'm not trying to slam anybody because I, I know that for me, uh, one of the reasons why I feel like the Bible's underused even in my life is it's really confusing. It's hard to understand like how it's supposed to work. How many of you guys have ever like read the Bible uh, and been like confused? Okay, anybody? Okay, um, so who's read the Bible and not been confused? Anybody? I mean, uh, okay, so, uh, right, there's just a lot of confusion there. And how many, uh, how many times have you felt a certain way, you felt a need in your life, or you, you've maybe had like an overwhelming question that you're trying to answer, or maybe a problem that you're trying to solve, and you go to the Bible looking for answers, and how many of you have been frustrated that it didn't answer the question? Yeah, right? Like, like um, I don't know about you, but I, I, I remember, uh, you know, like, Lord, I, should I get married? Should I, I mean, Lori, we're dating. Should I get engaged? Should, should we get married? And uh, I, this command I give to you today is certainly not too difficult or beyond your reach. That's literally what I just looked up there in Deuteronomy. And I, I listened to that text and, okay, so is that a Yes. That a yes, should I get married, right? Or should I change jobs? Or how do I deal with this pain I feel? And, and, and oftentimes this stems from the fact that we're often uncertain how the Bible is supposed to work, what it's supposed to do to us, how it's supposed to work on us, even how we're supposed to engage with it. So my hope today is we continue on in this series called Disciple, where we're looking at what it means to follow Jesus. We're doing a, a, an exploration through the Gospel of Mark. There's a scene in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 9, that we're going to look at today that I think will help enlighten us as we think about how the Bible works and what it's all about. In uh, one, of the, one of the earliest Jesus followers, a guy named Paul, he said that the scriptures are designed to make us wise unto salvation through in, uh, in Christ through faith. So it's about making us what? Wise. Okay, so it's wisdom literature. The Bible's wisdom literature. So one of the first questions that we're going to ask is, how is the Bible supposed to work on us? Well, one of the things that it is going to do to us or shape within us is wisdom. And it's a Jesus-centered, uh, faith-based uh, wisdom that leads us to salvation through Christ. So we're going to look at this today, and I hope that this will help give to you a sense of the Bible's direction or trajectory, and then maybe some expectations on how it can work. And then what we're going to do today as well is we're 
I'm going to apply some of what we learned in the, in the very real world that we live in. So the Bible gives us a frame. Uh, how many of y'all wear glasses or have seen a person wear glasses before? If you haven't seen a person wear glasses, you might in fact need to get glasses, right? So glasses, gl- glasses are frames, and what do they frame? What's the glass part called? Right, a lens. And so if you want to see clearly, if, right, so I, I wear contacts, but, but when I take my contacts out, if I want to see clearly, I put on the lens, right? I put on the frame, and that helps me to see clearly. When I see fuzzy, when I put that lens on, I see clearly. And what the Bible does to us, one of the things that the Scriptures do to us, is it gives us a frame in which to view ourselves, to view God, and to view the world. It gives us a lens to see through, to try to make sense of things, and I'd like to show you uh, how that's most articulated here in the text. So we'll go to Mark chapter 9. This is verses 2 through 13, so if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there. Uh, I believe it's also in your handout. For those of you all joining us online, if you don't have a print Bible available, that's okay. Just go to Bible.com, and we're using the Christian Standard Version of the Bible uh, today. So this is Mark chapter 9, verse 2 through 13, and I want you to pay special attention to how this story uh, works. Watch this. So um, first of all, what just got done happening in, in the narrative, if you followed with this last week. What just got done happening is Jesus predicted his death, burial, and resurrection. He predicted his death, burial, resurrection. Uh, Peter said that Jesus was the chosen one, but when Peter heard that Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem and die, Peter goes to Jesus and rebukes him, and then Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, which is pretty, is that strong language? It's strong language. Okay, so he says, get behind me, Satan. That literally is what just happened. And then what Jesus said is, some of you will not die before you see the kingdom of God coming in power. And so we just get done with this narrative where Jesus literally just articulated that he's going to Jerusalem and he's going to go be killed. He's going to be crucified. He's going to die, be buried, and rise from the grave. That's literally just what happens. And then six days later in the narrative, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, uh, three of his named disciples, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves to be alone. Okay, so let's just notice a few things in the text. Do we have any time stamps? Is there any time signatures on here? What is it? Six days. Okay, so why do we notice six days? Why does it just say a short while later or a few days later? Here's one of the things that may be happening. It may be a hint or a tether to uh, previous portions of Scripture. How many of y'all have been at a concert and the musicians start playing someone else's material? Does this ever happen to y'all, right? You're enjoying yourself, the, the band's up there, and then they start playing someone else's song, but they're doing it in their own way, but you recognize the song, right? This is, what's this called? A, um, what's it called when that happens? It's a, um, a cover, a cover, cover, okay, right? So there, it's a cover song, okay? So when, when one band is covering another band's material, there's a few ways you can do it. One is you can try to replicate the previous uh, band's material, right? You can just try to nail it. This is like a tribute band, okay? Then there's another way where you can cover the song, but you're doing it in your own way. You're doing it in uh, your own artistic way, but you expect that the hearer understands what you're doing, that they understand the song. And the biblical authors are frequently covering previous material, right? Some of you guys are acting like you don't go to concerts. Okay, let me try something else if I can just to relate to you. You know when you're at the club? Okay, 
okay, you know when you're at the club and, uh, you know, and right, and the DJ Funky Fresh is up there, and then what the DJ will do is he'll take a sample of some previous artist music and throw it into the mix and mix it all up. In fact, the DJ is taking samples, can be taking a backbeat from one musician, taking the lyrics or the singing from another, even taking like a saxophone from another, and, the D- and DJ Funky Fresh, you know, he's up there, he's mixing together all of the samples. The biblical authors, especially in the New Testament, are constantly sampling previously written, previously explored material and putting it together for your wisdom. Watch this. Six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain. That's an interesting note. Okay, so is there, so maybe, so maybe just for those of us uh, earlier today when we read our whole Bibles, do you recall that like stuff seems to happen on high mountains? Like there's frequently stuff happening on mountains. In fact, like, like one way to understand the Garden of Eden is that it's on top of a mountain because the four rivers flow uh, out from there. Uh, other things happen on mountaintops like, um, uh, like, what's that dude's name with the Ten Commandments and the things? What, um, Moses, Moses. So Moses, to meet God, Moses, in the book of Exodus, Moses would not go down into the valley. He wouldn't go out into the woods. Where would Moses go to meet with God? A high mountain, okay? In fact, in Exodus chapter 22, there's this moment where Moses is ascending the high mountain to meet with God at Mount Sinai, and there is a uh, amount of time that's noticed that he spends waiting for God to show up. You're never going to guess how many days it is. In six days. So what we have here, I think, is Mark, or the authors of Mark, riffing on the Exodus account. You're supposed to remember that song, right? Oh, this sounds an awful lot like the Exodus account, okay? After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transfigured in front of them. I love how Mark is, Mark is so uh, brief in his language. Like, here's this magnificent event, and he's like, yeah, he was transfigured. And his clothes became, so what's transfigured mean? Let's take a note. His clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. And so it, it doesn't matter if we know what transfigure means, but what we do know is this, is something is changing about Jesus's appearance that seems to be radiating. Are you guys seeing that in the text too? Right? It seems to be right. Like, just imagine how, how Mark might have to articulate, like, the brightness. And here he says, you know, it's like as white as no launderer on earth could get them because uh, we, we didn't figure out how to make it radiate. It's, it's whiter than that, right? So, like, those bleach commercials, more than that, right? It's radiating. Jesus is radiating. Now, this is interesting, too, because when Moses saw God, you know what it says about his face? It was radiating. So you've got here, I think what you've got here is you've got Mark uh, telling the story, giving an account of a time where Jesus takes on the persona or at least the figure of Moses. But where Moses went to meet with God face to face, something's different about this story, just like when a band does something different with a cover song for our delight and in this case for our wisdom. Notice this. Jesus is up on the mountain, and, and then he's got some guests. Uh, TV timeout. There's two really famous people in uh, Jewish tradition, Moses and Elijah. Moses was that dude we were just talking about in Exodus with the Ten Commandments. You guys remember him? Okay, so that's Moses. And Moses was like, like the, 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 the first like, 
boss level like status dude. Like he was the most awesomest dude in uh, Jewish tradition. In fact, he was the giver of the law. The first five books of the Bible are sometimes called the books of Moses. Because it's about Moses, as some of it uh, claims to be from Moses' own uh, mouth. And so Moses is the one who gives like the law, which is, in law, don't think in terms of legal code, think in, think in terms of instruction. Instruction, okay? So, so Moses is the one who gives the law, the instruction of God, the words of God. And then there's this prophet. So prophets are ones who speak on God's behalf. They speak God's truth uh, to people. And prophets are not, you guys got to hear me on this, a lot of times people say things like prophecy, uh, you know, it's about fortune telling. It's, the only time that prophets actually tell you about what's going to happen is if you're headed towards destruction because of your own sin and evil. This is what prophets would commonly do. Uh, hey, everyone, pay attention because the stuff you're doing will lead to your ruin. So turn, repent, and believe in the good news, right? Turn from your evil ways and turn back towards God. Because if you don't turn... You're headed towards destruction. That's what prophets would usually do. And you know who really liked that? Who, who just loved to hear a prophet's words? No, nobody. Which is why most of the prophets got killed. So the, the interesting thing about Elijah is, uh, according to the text, that he's, uh, the way that it describes his end is that he actually is taken away by God and uh, he's taken away by God. So he doesn't have like a death scene in the old, what we call the Old Testament. So you, and neither, actually Moses kind of, we're not really sure where he's buried. We don't know where he was buried. So there's these two dudes in the, uh, in, in the Jewish tradition at the time who were uh, a, a boss level lawgiver and a boss level prophet. And we're not quite sure about their death. In fact, there were rumors that they would one day return that they would one day return. So notice this. They were talking with Jesus. So Elijah and Moses, is this something that dead people do? Let's just have a conversation about the world. In the world, do dead people usually get up on mountaintops and talk? In fact, if you were to see that, how might you feel? Scared, right? absolutely horrified. So Peter says to Jesus, so put yourself in Peter's shoes. Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Really, Peter? Is it? Is it really, Peter? Notice what Peter says next. Let us set up three shelters. Another translation for that is tabernacles, and tabernacle is what uh, is used, the word that's used in uh, your Older Testament, like in the book of Exodus. Uh, it's the house of where God's uh, presence dwells. It's like the tent of God's presence or the tent of meeting. So let us set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because they don't want to bunk together. Everyone knows that prophets and lawgivers don't want to be in the same tabernacle, right? I mean, I, I, don't even, I have no idea why Peter thinks three. And for Elijah, because he did not know what to say since they were, of course they were terrified. Here they're seeing Jesus on top of a mountain where holy God-like experiences happen. And one of the things that they know about holy God-like experiences happening on mountaintops is sometimes when people do that, if they're not in the right state, they die. And so here now they're experiencing what they think is a presence of God moment where there's Elijah, there's Moses, and then there's Jesus. And we get the impression that Jesus is glowing white or radiating glory. And Peter does not know what to do. Of course Peter doesn't know what to do. So he says, uh, it's good for us to be here. Let's, uh, let's set up three tabernacles. Now, I just want to zoom in on something here. Remember that we're asking, like, one of the questions we're asking is, what's the Bible all about? 
Well, the Bible, the scriptures are designed to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus. But I want to notice something too that's going on here. What was Moses really known for giving the, the law? You guys remember that? Moses was like known as giving the law. And Elijah was a, a prophet and he was like a boss status prophet. In fact, both of these could be viewed as figureheads for, for how the scripture was divided in Jesus' day. Uh, today, we use language like the New Testament and the Old Testament, and, and that, that's, that's helpful for us to understand. Are we talking about like the Hebrew scriptures, or are we talking about the scriptures that came after the resurrection? So that's like your New Testament. But in Jesus' day, they didn't have Old Testament, New Testament. They would refer to their scriptures as the law and the prophets. That Jesus, in fact, would say, is it not written in the law and the prophets. It was another way for them to say their scriptures. And here you have the two figureheads of those two portions of scriptures, the law and the prophets, up on this mountaintop, and who are they speaking to? And here's something else that's interesting too. You see, Moses spoke on behalf of God. Elijah also spoke on behalf of God. But what we'll discover in a little while is that Jesus does not show up speaking on God's behalf. Jesus shows up saying, thus saith the Lord, I am. You see, while Moses and Elijah point to God, Jesus shows up and says, listen to me. Don't, you don't need to, right? Don't listen to Moses primarily. Don't listen to Elijah primarily. Moses and Elijah point to me. So here's, here's the takeaways. You think about your Bible. The Bible is complex. It's utterly magnificent, sometimes frustrating, oftentimes a giver of wisdom. But at the end of the day, your Bible is pointing you to Jesus. So in all those confusing portions, it's pointing you not to a place, but to a person. You see, the Bible, the scriptures are designed to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus. So whenever you're in the Bible, whenever you're reading, whenever you're talking together, a great question to ask is, how does this point me to Jesus? How does this point us to Jesus? So you've got Moses and Elijah pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the final word. This is actually interesting. We don't have prophets proper coming after Jesus. For the final word of God is spoken in Jesus. So we're going to set up three shelters, and then notice what happens next. Oh, I got to tell you guys something. Okay, check this out. In Moses' day, as the people of God are fleeing Egypt, and now they're wandering in the desert, uh, the presence of God would, would usually dwell in a, a tent or a tabernacle. And the way that you knew that the presence of God was dwelling in the tabernacle was there was a pillar of cloud that would descend and people would know God is with us. That's the presence of God right there is this pillar of cloud. You guys got me so far? So the presence of God was signified as what? Cloud. A cloud. What am, I tell, am, I, am I lying over here? This is, this is straight out of Exodus. A cloud appeared, overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, I want to remind us, if you've been following along in Mark, early on in the Gospel of Mark, uh, at the baptism of Jesus, the baptism of Jesus, Jesus is baptized. The, the text says that he comes up out of the water and that, uh, that a voice from heaven speaks while the Spirit of God descends like a dove unto Jesus, a voice from heaven speaks, 
I believe we're supposed to understand it as God the Father, Yahweh. A voice from heaven speaks and says, this is my beloved son. Here we have the same thing. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Why do you think we have it again? Like if you're just reading through the narrative at once, why, are we, why is Mark repeating himself now? Why do we have this again? And I'd like to give you my opinion, if that's okay. This is my opinion. I think it's because we are having a hard time hearing what Jesus says and believing him. What Jesus just said at the end of chapter 8 is this. You want me to be your Messiah? You want me to be your chosen one? I, will be. I am the chosen one. I am the Messiah. I'm the Christ. And here's how I'm going to ascend my throne, is I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be crucified. Is that easy to hear? It's hard to hear. In fact, if a person said that the way up is down, the way, uh, uh, the way to rule all is to serve all, the first shall be last, are those easy things to hear? How about love your enemy? You guys like that one? I don't like that one. That's not easy to hear. In fact, when I hear somebody saying things like that, I, do, I want to not listen to them. And when I hear that my, uh, the one I've placed all my hope in, when I hear, if I'm Peter, James, or John, when I hear that the one to whom I've put all of my trust in says to me, look, I'm going to go be crucified and die, I might start wondering, is, should I listen to this guy? And notice here we have it again reiterated. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. It's an affirmation. From this moment on, Jesus is marching directly towards Jerusalem in the narrative. And so here is this word of God speaking, to the incarnate, uh, speaking over the incarnate word of God, riffing on Elijah and Moses saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He does not say that about Elijah or Moses, okay? Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except for Jesus. So what happens to Moses and Elijah? We don't know. They're gone. Just as they kind of showed up, now they ghost. Okay? So we don't know. All we know is who's left. So Moses and Elijah are pointing us to whom? Jesus. Okay? So here we go. As they were coming down the mountain... Okay, so now they're done with this mountaintop experience. He ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. I love this next question, or this next statement. As they kept, uh, they kept his word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. These guys are coming down the mountain. They've heard Jesus now multiple times say, look, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. Look, yes, I'm the Messiah. I'm the chosen one. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I am going to What? be turned over into the hands of our enemies. And then they're going to do what to me? They're going to nail me to a cross. They're going to crucify me. And they're going to put me into the ground. And then three days later, I'm going to, I'm going to rise from the dead. And so they heard this and they're like, cool, 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 cool. Oh, you know what I was telling anybody? Okay, don't worry. We might write it in the Bible later, but for now, we're not going to tell anybody. And they're coming down the mountain asking each other, does anyone know what this guy is talking about? Rising from the dead? What do you think it means? Well, I think it's a metaphor for peace and goodwill. Well, what do you think it means? I don't know. I think it has something to do with bread. What do you think that it means? I, I don't know. Right? 
So here are Jesus' disciples confused at the teaching of Jesus, which means for those of us that are disciples of Jesus, when we feel confused, we're in good company. And we might even take this as a Bible study method where we read the text together and question it to each other. What do you think Jesus means when he says, love our enemies? This seems crazy. What do you think? This is what disciples of Jesus do, is they wrestle with Jesus' teaching together. All right, so let's lean into application here just for a little bit. Let's, let's keep going. Then they asked him, why do the scribes... So no, <laughs> I think they're actually trying to trap Jesus. Like, I think they're trying to do a gotcha like a Bible gotcha for Jesus, which by the way, if you want to do a Bible gotcha for Jesus, who do you think is going to win? Yeah, Jesus. Okay, just wanted to be clear. Then they asked him, why do the scribes, Jesus, uh, pardon me, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And notice Jesus' response. Elijah does come first and restores all things. This is a little confusing, isn't it? Does anyone get what's going on yet? Here's, here's, I've been wrestling with this for, for a few uh, months Here's what I think is happening. I think the disciples are trying to correct Jesus by saying, listen, we haven't seen Elijah yet, so you can't be talking about this end of the world stuff. Like we're still waiting for, like Jesus, don't get ahead of yourself. We're still waiting on Elijah. And then Jesus says, no, no, no. Elijah does come first and restores all things, he replies. Now this is interesting. Oh, by the way, who was the two people that they just saw on top of the mountain? Okay, so I, I kind of think that's interesting, like, you just saw him. He did. He was here. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Okay. So again, Jesus is doing Bible wrestling with them over their views of who Jesus is, and he's bringing the Scripture to bear on them. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and I think this. I think he's. Um, I think we're to to get this from the text. If you read the whole of the Gospel of Mark, I think he means here for us to see that uh, John the Baptist is is the Elijah that he's referring to here. That's my opinion. Maybe you have a different one, and we could talk about it later. But just in my reading, is if you read the whole of Mark in one sitting, I think you'll see. Oh, this is. The Elijah he's referring to is John the Baptist. And they did to him whatever they pleased, just as it is written about him. Notice this. Okay, so we're going to land the plane here. What did they do to the Elijah that came in John the Baptist? Whatever they what? Whatever they pleased. In fact, in Mark's narrative, the, a king, Herod, King Herod, executes, not actually executes, orders the murder of John the Baptist. So Elijah comes, and what happens to him? They murder him. Jesus is talking about and foretelling what's going to happen to him. And what did he say was going to happen to him? I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and then I'm going to what? I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be betrayed. And they didn't want to hear it. You see, Jesus here is giving us a lens to view the world. And there's two things about this lens, and I want to apply it. At least I want to share with you how I've been applying it over the last couple of weeks. Jesus here does two things. One, Jesus unabashedly looks evil and death right in the eye. There's nothing in this text that screams of Pollyanna, pie in the sky, everything is going to work out in the end. There's on two occasions he's referring to his own death and then the murder of his cousin, John the Baptist. Do you think Jesus knows that evil exists in the world? Hey, let's just have a conversation, all right? Especially for thinking about the last 
couple weeks. Do you think that Jesus knows that death is powerful? That evil forces in this world parade death around as if it's victorious? Here, even in this text, through this lens that Jesus is giving us, this frame, Jesus is telling us death is real. In fact, Jesus says of himself, death will take me too. But Jesus does something else. In the frame that Jesus gives us, the lens that he gives us to see the world, he also says, but death is not the end. He points not only to his death, but also to his what? His resurrection. And so in the Jesus lens, in our viewing and how Jesus frames the world, as we look at ourselves, as we look into the world, as we look at God, we see it through this frame. We see it through this lens of death, burial, and resurrection. That, that death is not the end. You see, the, uh, there's other frames, there's other lenses that will say death is the final end. That death is it, that that's all there is. But Jesus says, no, death is not ultimately victorious. I am. So this last two weeks, we have heard news of mass shootings in Buffalo, California, Texas. And we've seen the names and we've seen the faces of those who have been gunned down. Many of us wrestle with what do we say, what do we do. There's a lot of unhelpful voices also right now that seem to be propagating anger and fury and rage and evil. And, and we're asking ourselves, for those of us that are Jesus followers, we're asking ourselves the question, like, how do, we, how do we make this whole? How do we fix this? How do we even make sense of it? And, and here's where I'm at with it. First of all, I, I, so I've been serving as lead pastor here for seven years. I counted the other day. Uh, 22 Sundays I've stepped into this pulpit praying through how to address something very similar to what's happened over the last two weeks. That's a pretty high percentage. And each time it, it weighs on me and eats at me, as it does for many of you. So we ask the question, how do we, how do we make sense of it? How do we make sense of it? Here's, the, here's what... One of the frustrating things Every time I've asked that question, God, help me make sense of this. He hasn't given me an answer. I go to my Bible and I talk to other believers and I ask, why is this happening? And about the best that I've got is that the kingdoms of this world continue to do their parade of death. That evil still is a powerful force but the kingdom of God is breaking in, but not yet come in its fullness. And I think that that frame at least gives me a lens in which to see this reality that, that these shootings, these acts of injustice and violence, and the acts of injustice and violence that we have personally experienced 
as individuals, in our communities, the church family, we, we look at those through the Jesus lens, not Pollyanna, not brushing it over, not shrugging our shoulders and saying, oh, it's all gonna work out in the end. But we see that Jesus looks death in the eye. Jesus does not say that death is no more. Jesus says death will be no more in the resurrection. And so we live between this space where Jesus went into death and then conquered over death in his resurrection. And so too, you and I will go into death and because of who Jesus is, we will rise anew in the resurrection. And we're in this in-between time. So if we put on the Jesus lens, we recognize that death and evil continue to be a powerful force. And so what do we do? Well, we lament, we cry out. I'm going to say something here, and and if you want to talk more about it, I, I would invite you to talk with me more about it. I think we do curse. I think there's precedent in that in your scripture. I think we argue with God. Boy, is there a lot of precedent in your scripture for arguing with God. Things like this. God, how could you let this happen? God, this... I see those faces. And what do I do? What can I do but to cry out, God, where are you? God, why is this happening, God? You say you love us, you say you're powerful, you say you're a miracle worker, so God, why? And, and with the Jesus lens, first of all, I want to just encourage you, if, if that's where you're at, be in that space. There's no shame in that, there's no guilt in that. Jesus, in fact, invites you to process all that in front of him. I'd like to prove it to you. One of the last words of Jesus in his crucifixion was this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I believe that that's an invitation to process this with our loving God, even to argue and to, to express our anger and even our rage and our fear and our sadness. But with that Jesus lens, I also see that death is not ultimately victorious. Here's the application for me. A few days ago, as I was reading through the list of names of the victims in Buffalo, and then just yesterday, as I'm reading through the list of names of those in Texas, I look upon those names, I'm reminded of Jesus, and this is, I think, what the Lord spoke to me, is that those souls are not lost to me. Death is not the end. So the Jesus lens, all of Scripture is pointing us to Jesus, working to make us wise, the salvation through faith in Jesus, pointing us to Jesus, giving us the wisdom to be able to navigate a world in which school shootings happen over 28 times in a seven-year span of this pastor's role. And countless other circumstances where we find ourselves shaking our fists, holding up our hands, and asking why. So this is the encouragement that I take from Jesus. Jesus looks his own death in the eye and then proclaims victory in his resurrection. 
and promises to you and to me and to all who call upon the name of the Lord that there will one day be a resurrection from the dead. The dead rise. The death has no victory. The sting of death is taken up. And while we lament and question and mourn and get angry, we do so as a people who hope in the resurrection. And this is what empowers us, by the way, to be a people who leave vengeance to the Lord, who do not cling to our own way and our own preferences and our own rights, but rather live in the service of others as ambassadors of his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We have the power to live on earth as it is in heaven right now because death is not the end. And so in just a few moments, we're going to take of communion. As we take of the bread and as we drink of the juice, we will remember the Lord's death. We will also proclaim his resurrection together. And so I'm going to take a moment and pray, and I'm going to invite you to join me in this prayer. And then we're going to have a moment to reflect, and then my friend Berta is going to join me, and we're going to lead in the taking of communion together. If you would please grab the elements. They're available in the back of the seat in front of you or on the tables in the back. For those of you joining us online, if you would please grab some elements that would represent the body and blood of Jesus. And so I'm going to pray a prayer of preparation. And I would ask that you would pray along with me. And then we'll pause to reflect. And then again, Berta and I will lead in communion in just a moment. So let's pray. Lord, in this act, we recognize that we are called to live according to the new covenant as citizens of your kingdom, practicing your values on earth as it is in heaven. And as we prepare our hearts, we recognize that we often fail in this regard. And so, Lord, we pray and confess that we have not always lived according to your kingdom. We have often propagated injustice and evil ourselves. We have fostered disunity, practicing favoritism, elevating our own concerns and preferences over others. Moreover, we have often failed to show hospitality, love, and grace. We have often failed not to live the fruit of the Spirit. And this we confess before you now. And we repent. We turn from these sins and we turn back to you, Jesus. Knowing that you will never leave us nor forsake us, we ask that your spirit would continue to shape us into your image. As we consider the events of the last two weeks and we lament and we process and we pray, Lord, we also this day take communion and proclaim your finished work on the cross, your death, and your resurrection. We cling to you in this moment knowing that you are the one who brings salvation, forgiveness, life, life abundant, reconciliation in all things, and that in you, all things one day will be restored. The dead will rise to life everlasting. We pray these things in Jesus' name.
We take of this bread and of this fruit of the vine, not because we must, but because we may. This is an invitation to join in union with God our Father and with one another. It's an invitation to, with our bodies, remember the body and blood of Jesus. It's an invitation as a community to share union with one another and within our union to proclaim the Lord's resurrection till the day that he returns and the hope that all things will one day be restored. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. He gave it to his disciples. I'm going to read from this text in English, in Berta. I'm going to read it in Spanish. In the libro de Mark, capítulo 14, dice, Mientras comían, Jesús tomó pan y lo bendijo. Luego lo partió y se lo dio a ellos, diciéndoles, Tomen esto, es mi cuerpo. Después tomó una copa, dio gracias y se la dio a ellos, y todos bebieron de ella. Esto es mi sangre del pacto, que es derramada por muchos, les dijo. Les aseguro que no volveré a beber del fruto de la vid hasta aquel día en que beba el vino nuevo en el reino de Dios. As they were eating, he took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to them and said, take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. He said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly, I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. En esa misma cena, Jesús tomó el pan, lo partió, diciendo, Este es mi cuerpo, roto por todos ustedes. Hagan esto en recuerdo de él. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. After giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it and eat. This is my body, broken for you. Would you take and eat? De la misma manera, tomó una copa, diciendo, Esta es mi sangre del pacto. Derramada por muchos. Hagan esto en recuerdo de él. In the same way he took of the cup, saying, This is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sin. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you take and drink? Join me as we pray. Lord Jesus, in this moment, would you continue to give to us wisdom? as we strive to navigate this world as your ambassadors, living according to your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. May we be a people who proclaim your resurrection and live in light of that truth to the day that you return and restore all that which is broken. Amen. Amen.